You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. Thank you for worshiping the Lord with us. And if you are a kindergartner or first grader, you can go off to Bible study and study God's word. Excellent. And for the rest of us, let me invite you to turn to the letter of Jude in the New Testament. We're going to look at Jude 5 through 7. Uh, This is your first time with us this morning. We are so glad that you're here. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church, and we've been working verse by verse through this little letter of Jude. And so we're going to look at Jude, verse 5 through 7 this morning, and dive in and see what God has to teach us about himself. So Jude chapter 5, well, excuse me, Jude, verse 5 through 7. No chapters in Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we desire to worship you this morning, Lord, as we've just sung to, to lift high your name, Father, we want to lift you up and praise you for who you are, the fullness of who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be. Lord, we don't want to worship you as a God of our own making, but Lord, as the God in which you have revealed yourself to be in your word. And so, Father, as we look to Jude this morning, as we look to this New Testament book, Father, we pray that you would help us to have a comprehensive vision of your character, of your nature, of your heart. And Father, I pray that as your word is preached, that your church would be built up and that those who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, or that they would come and seek refuge and comfort in him for the salvation of their sins. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I know we've got a a few cooks in our church and, you know, part of the fun of cooking is the, the improvising that comes along with it sometimes, isn't it? You know, you can find a recipe online. There are tons of them now. You can pull one up, and, and again, you could follow the directions precisely, but part of the fun sometimes comes from tweaking it a little bit, adding an ingredient, maybe taking out one, maybe swapping it and replacing it with another. But, but when you start baking, that's a very different story, isn't it? you got to be very careful as you begin to meddle with the directions because deviating from a baking recipe nine times out of ten turns out into a big-time disaster. 
Because everything is just so precise. It's a chemical reaction, right? So if you, if you deviate from the recipe at all, you will throw off the entire chemical reaction of the baking process and end up with something not worth eating at all. You know, as we talked about last week, as we've been working through this book of Jude, we talked about that, that when people abandon this faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints— they tend to fashion up a God of their own making, a God that satiates their, their own palate. But like deviating from the recipe, those who cook up their own God will taste the bitter amalgamation of their own foolishness. It's a, it's a foolish thing to do. You can't cook up your own God. God is who he has revealed himself to be. He's not whoever you wish him to be. But that hasn't stopped people from trying. It doesn't stop people from trying to, to edit, edit the recipe of God's self-revelation in the Bible in order to cook up their own idol. And it always leads to disastrous effects. But if there is one aspect, one component of God's nature that people are most likely to try to cut out, it is God's wrath. It is his wrath. That is the, the first ingredient to go, the first revision that, that people tend to make. But yet this tendency to try to get rid of God's wrath as taught in the scriptures, that's not something new, nor is it something uniquely American. But even in the early church, it was a factor. There was a heretic named Marcion who believed that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. One was a God of wrath and judgment. The other, the God of love and grace. And so for Marcion, as he looked at the Old Testament, he saw God's wrath and judgment for sin. And he said, that's got to go. That can't be the God I want to worship. God couldn't be like that, but however, Marcion, like so many others today, failed to grasp the heart and love of God in the Old Testament, but they also miss the wrath and judgment of Christ presented in the New Testament. You see, one of the things Jude is so helpful for us as we study this book together is Jude is, is going to help us see that God's action and work in the Old Covenant and in the new covenant are united in the presentation of the fullness of God's character. That this Jesus who lovingly lays down his life for sinners like you and I, this is the same Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and who will pour out the judgment of his wrath upon those who reject his rule. This is what the New Testament says. So here's the, the sermon summary. if you want to jot this down. What does Jude teach us here this morning in verse 5 through 7? He said, those who rebel against Christ will one day be destroyed by Christ. Those who rebel against Christ will one day be destroyed by Christ. And these are sobering truths, but yet they are truths from God's word that we need to hear. So as Jude begins to, to make his rebuke about these false teachers. You'll remember last week, he, he showed us and taught us how he had to contend for the faith and that there were some certain people who crept into the church that were leading them astray. Now Jude is going to show us why 
these false teachers are condemned by God. And as Jesus, uh, as Jude begins to rebuke these false teachers, he's going to show us three examples of God's judgment upon those who defy him. And so we must remember who God is, the fullness of who he is. So as we talk through these three examples this morning, let's talk about the first one. We have to remember the destruction of unbelief. We have to remember the destruction of unbelief. There are a lot of dangers to the Christian life. I'm sure you can come up with quite a few. But I think perhaps one of the most dangerous things in the Christian life is our own forgetfulness. Our own forgetfulness. As we go about our lives, as we live day to day, our memories of God's character, of his promises, even of the gospel itself begin to fade. We're just forgetful people, aren't we? And this is why we need the word of God. This is why we need the weekly worship of the church to help remind us of the faith, to help recalibrate our hearts in light of who God is. And it's in this urgency of this crisis of these false teachers that have infiltrated the church that Jude reminds them of God's judgment upon sinners and those who would rebel against God's word. And so Jude is going to provide three examples from the past demonstrating how God has long ago, as he said earlier, long ago designated these false teachers for condemnation. And Jude says, you know, although the church once fully knew it, he needs to remind them of the gravity of judgment upon those who rebel against the Lord. Jude is calling them to remember. Look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. And so in this first example that he gives in verse 5, we see that he recalls the unbelief of the wilderness generation of Israel. And interestingly, I don't know if you caught it here, but Jude attributes Israel's deliverance out of Egyptian slavery, he attributes that work to Jesus. To Jesus. Isn't that interesting? There is some discrepancy a little bit in the manuscript evidence, and some manuscripts say Lord and others say Jesus, but the best and most reliable manuscripts say Jesus here in verse 5. And as Jude is looking to his big brother, Jesus, he understands that this Jesus is the God of Israel, Yahweh, the son of God enfleshed. Remember, as Jesus said before, Abraham was, I am. And so as Jude describes Jesus as the one who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, Jude is not only emphasizing the salvation that Jesus brought the people of Israel, but he's also emphasizing that Jesus also destroyed those who did not believe. And so Jude is is disarming anybody like Marcion, isn't he? Anyone who would form a dichotomy between God's actions in the Old Testament and his actions in the new covenant, the person of Christ, he's saying that's a false dichotomy. The same God in the Old Testament is Jesus. In flesh, this is who God is. And so this eternal Christ was the, and is the active word of God bringing the judgment of his father upon the people. So Jesus is the fullness of God's good word. And this word of judgment and comfort, of wrath and peace, this is, this is Jesus. 
And Jesus is the merciful son, isn't he? He is filled with compassion and love for sinners, but we also have to remind ourselves he is the fierce and powerful king. The New Testament does not give us a timid or pushover Christ. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you know, a popular perception of Jesus is one of, of a hippie and just kind of going around the, the first century, just preaching peace and love. But that's not the Jesus taught in the scriptures or revealed in the scriptures. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords, one whom we should fear. And this is what the Psalms help us to remind ourselves of this promised king. As the Psalms would say, Psalm chapter 2 Verse 11 through 12, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the question I want to ask you is, is, do you know this Jesus? The Jesus taught in the Bible, not the Jesus of popular culture, not the Jesus of your own fa uh, fabrication, but this Jesus, as Jude says, who, who saves but also destroys. Has your perception of Jesus' identity been shaped by your own palate? You see, popular conceptions of Jesus come and go, but they have no basis in God's word. And so our understanding of Christ's heart must be shaped by the word of God. So this Jesus, who saved Israel out of the land of Egypt and who brought them into freedom, but as, as Jude's highlighting this example, he, he shows us that instead of believing God's good promises to bring them into the good land, a land that would flow with milk and honey, the promised land, Israel did not believe that God was capable of doing that. They did not believe that God would give them victory over the Canaanites, who to them seemed like giants. They were fearful. They were scared. And so when Israel went out to scout the land, they sent in some spies, and, and all the spies did not believe that God would grant them victory except for two, Caleb and Joshua. And so they rallied the people to say, all right, this is too much. God can't do this. Let's just elect a leader. Let's go back to Egypt. It was much safer there. They disbelieved God. And, you know, it's, as we look at that wilderness generation, they, they kind of flabbergast us a little bit, don't they? I mean, this generation saw the mighty works of God and the plagues that unleashed upon Egypt. You know, they saw the the Red Sea opened and they crossed on dry land to freedom. They saw the, the glory of the Lord that led them by fire and by smoke. This God who provided for them manna from heaven so they could be nourished and who, who gave them water that poured out like streams from rocks. I mean, they have witnessed the power and the ability and the provision of their God. And it was this generation who witnessed the power of God in unprecedented ways who now stands at the edge of the promised land and do not believe God. And in light of Israel's unbelief, we're told in the book of Numbers, God is ready to destroy the nation and he's ready to start over 
with Moses. You can read about this in, in Numbers chapter 14. Let me read you verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, then God decided later on in verse 22 through verse 23, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. So in light of Israel's refusal to go into the promised land, in light of their failure to believe in God, God sentences that whole generation to death in the wilderness. And Jude warns, in light of this example, of the destruction of those who do not believe God. You see, we become Christians based off our belief in Christ. It is by our faith that we are saved in Jesus. But our belief in Jesus is not a one-time act done at a young age. And then once we make that decision, then we just go on and then we live a life of unbelief. And that doesn't make any sense. No, the entirety of the Christian life and the mark of truly saving faith is the continual and persistent belief in Jesus and his word. So church, we have to heed the warning that the author of Hebrews gives us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, as we think about what it means to believe in Jesus, belief is not a cognitive state, but it is an active trust demonstrated by our obedience. Israel's disbelief led to their disobedience, to their refusal to go into the promised land as God instructed them. And as Jude evaluates these false teachers that are, have crept into the church, they too have disbelieving hearts, refusing to obey what Christ has said. You see, underneath all of our disobedience lies the root, the devilish root of unbelief. So Christian, keep watch over your heart and, and ask the Spirit to help you root out any disbelief that is lingering in your heart because remember Jude's warning, his words, remember the destruction that comes upon those who disbelieve God. Secondly, remember the judgment of rebellion. Remember the judgment of rebellion. We see this in verse six. So Jude's first example of why these false teachers are condemned is the unbelieving generation in the wilderness of Israel. The second references an angelic rebellion. Here Jude alludes most likely to Genesis chapter six. And in Genesis chapter six, we are told of the increasing corruption upon the earth building up to God's decision to destroy the world by flood. 
And so this is what Genesis 6 says. You can flip there and just listen to me read it. Genesis 6, verse 1 through 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, this is a a very difficult passage to understand what's going on here in Genesis chapter 6. And this passage has a variety of different modern interpretations of what's going on here. But the question is, what did Jude have in mind as he was referencing this passage? And so this event, Genesis 6, seems to be what Jude is referencing here when he talks about this angelic rebellion. As he writes in verse 6 and in his letter, his language alludes and references to a Jewish book called First Enoch. It's not a a book in the biblical canon, but it was a book which many Jewish people were familiar with during Jude's time. So it's not a book of the Old Testament canon, but it was a popular book of Jewish literature that often expanded upon events recorded in the Old Testament. So Jude alludes to First Enoch here in verse 6 and the way he kind of states things. But he will quote from First Enoch directly in verses 14 and 15 of the letter, which we'll look at in the next, next week or so. So First Enoch discusses this rebellion of the angels, particularly at Genesis 6, extensively. So this is most likely what Jude has in mind as he's writing this second example of warning. And so scholars debate here whether Jude is referring to the general rebellion of the angels or a specific rebellion of Genesis 6, but his use of 1 Enoch makes the reference to Genesis 6, I think, the most likely. And some people, including myself for a time, had been disturbed by Jude's use of 1 Enoch, but we really don't need to be disturbed by him using an extra biblical book as a reference Because Jude is not affirming the historicity of 1st Enoch, nor is he holding it up as a book on par with Scripture. However, as he's writing to his audience of Jewish Christian, he pulls from a well-known source to illustrate his point. However, the common and traditional understanding of Jude's day of Genesis chapter 6 is the rebellion of these angels, these sons of God who engaged in a sexual relationship with human women. So the phrase sons of God frequently was a term in referencing to angels in the Old Testament. And this view was popularized in a lot of ways by first Enoch. And so the modern interpretations of Genesis 6 differs a lot from this. Um, For example, many believe that Genesis 6 doesn't refer to angels as sons of God, but rather to the lineage of Seth as the sons of God. But it is most likely that Jude believed that the sons of God in Genesis 6 referred to angels. But don't lose the force for the trees, right? Don't miss Jude's point. Jude moves very quickly through these examples, very fast, often leaving us with more questions than answers sometimes. But even though there's some questions here, the, the point that he is making and his reference of this event is obvious, that these angels who rebelled against the Lord and the Lord's purposes did not stay within their own position of authority. They rebelled against God, and now they are waiting in the imprisonment of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. You see, in these angels' rebellion, whatever this rebellion was, we see that pride tended to elevate them above God. 
This is what pride does to our hearts, just like it did to these angels' hearts, that by pride, we tend to overstep our place. We trespass God's boundaries. We do that which is contrary to God's natural law. You see, those who rebel against God will be judged by the Lord. And even this great angels of heaven and their preeminent position, their lofty position in heaven, even these angelic beings, Jude says, will not avoid the judgment of God for their rebellion. As Jude calls to mind their rebellion, he highlights the irony here that as Christians, we have been saved out of our rebellion. That's where we were. We were enemies of God. We were those who rebelled against the Lord, but God has made peace through the blood of his cross. And so Jude's question here that kind of undergirds the surface of this text is that if these false teachers truly had peace with God, why do they continue to live in rebellion against God? If they have been reconciled to God, then why are they acting as God's enemies do? See, Jude's point is very clear, but very sobering, that those who claim to be reconciled to God, but who actually live in rebellion against him, will be locked in the gloomy prison of hell. As Jude observes these false teachers and their licentious living, he is not sure of their salvation, but he is sure of their destruction. Their lives, Jude says, they, they follow the pattern of demons. They don't follow, their lives aren't following the pattern of obedient children. Their ungodly lives, these false teachers, their, their ungodliness overrules their supposed confession of faith. Their carnality and their sensuality reveals and exposes their unregenerate hearts. That they are, their professed faith is not genuine, but it's phony. And the fruit of their lives reveals the roots of their hearts. (coughs) So is your heart like these fallen angels that Jude mentions, like these false teachers? Is your heart filled with pride? Are you insubordinate and defiant to the master and Lord you claim to profess? You see, these are hard truths, but Jude is reminding us of them because we tend to forget them. We live in an age where many have professed to be Christian, but their lives are indistinguishable from the world. They claim to be Christian. They claim to have peace with God, but they join in the rebellion against God. Jude tells us that there's a pattern. There's a pattern of God dealing with such charlatans. The prophetic word condemns such imposters. And they too, like these fallen angels, will be locked away in eternal chains. So church, remember the judgment that comes from rebellion. Then the third example. Thirdly, remember the punishment of immorality. Remember the punishment of immorality. This third example that Jude brings up here in the text in verse 7 is the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these two cities illustrate the severity of God's wrath upon those who live immoral lives. 
So, so the, 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 the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah is recorded in, in Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. If you want to go back and reference what Jude is referencing here. And after Abraham's pleading, if you remember from those two chapters, Abraham pleads, the Lord sends in a rescue mission into the wicked city of Sodom to save Lot and his family. And so the Lord sent two angels into the city to get Lot and his family out of there before the Lord destroys these cities for their immorality. And these angels are are met with Lot's hospitality, but but in this city, as they enter in, we see the depravity of this city as its citizens crowd outside Lot's door and as they aggressively demand to rape the angels disguised as men. And so the angels intervene, of course, and they blinded those who wanted to sexually exalt them, but, but they helped, these angels did help Lot and his family escape the city. So why does Jude mention Sodom and Gomorrah? What is it, what's the points he's trying to make? Well, in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see the carnality of unrestrained sensuality. Sin had overtaken these cities so much that sexual immorality homosexuality and sexual assault were normalized. And as Jude observes, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, the Lord, by his grace, often curtails human sin from its corrosive effects on society. The world is not as bad as it ought to be because of our sin. And praise be to the Lord for the common grace in restraining human evil and sin. But as we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, we see what happens when sexual immorality and the desires of the flesh go unrestrained. And it's frightening. It's terrifying. And we live in similar times. We live in an age of sexual indulgence and forms of sexual depravity that the Sodomites could have only dreamed of. You see, the sexual revolution has made pleasure king, and it has made us slaves to sensuality. And so as Jude is addressing these false teachers, they they, they attempt, remember, to use grace in order to justify carnal living to accept the the sexual immorality of the Roman culture, to make it normal for Christians to participate in what Rome does. And they used grace as a way to permit sexual licentiousness, to tolerate pornography and the cultic prostitution of the Roman Empire, to affirm and participate in same-sex practices. See, just as many Christians today try to twist the gospel to affirm sexual practices which God has clearly called sin, so too did these false teachers, these supposed Christians, try to do the same in the first century. And Jude comes back severely in this warning that those who live like Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. For Jude, the the way Jesus the judge has handled sinners in the past is the same way in which he will handle them today and in the future. They will be condemned and they will receive the punishment of the fires of hell. 
that just as the fiery sulfur fell upon these two depraved cities, so too will every unbeliever, every rebel, every immoral person be thrown into the fires of hell. Hell is not popular today. Not sure it ever has been. Many have denied it. Many have dismissed it. But the teaching of an eternal hell is taught so clearly in the Bible. Taught most consistently, most numerously, most clearly by Jesus himself. You know, Pastor Tim read from Mark chapter 9 at the beginning of our service. And we see these are Jesus' words. Let me remind you what he said. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, Jesus describes hell as a literal place of unquenchable fire reserved for sinners. And this hell is not just a literal place, Jesus says, but it is an eternal one where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a terrible place. It is no laughing matter. And as Jude showcases the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, this is just a prototype of what's to come to the, those who live in immorality and those who indulge their flesh, those who live as rebels of God. There will be a punishment, Jude says, of eternal fire. So the false teachers who, who embrace sin, who love the sins of the flesh, they are not the beloved in the Father, Jude says. They are traitors. And they are enemies of God who will join in the rest of the world in its condemnation. Professed Christians who embrace sin and who coddle their sexual and sensual desires, be warned. The wrath of King Jesus will pour out on the unbelievers, on the rebels, on the immoral. Let us remind ourselves that hell is not a place for extraordinary sinners, but for every sinner. That includes you. That includes me. Every one of us deserves the punishment of hell for all have, fall, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All deserve the, the wages of death. Every one of us is born with an unbelieving heart. You and I, we have rebelled against God. We have lived immoral lives. The eternal fire of judgment is what I deserve. It's what you deserve. I deserve to die alone in the wilderness for my unbelief. I deserve to be shackled by eternal chains for my rebellion. And I deserve the reign of fire to crush me and to endure the eternal flames for all eternity. But yet God, by his overflowing grace and love, Christ Jesus absorbs our penalty. He takes on our deserved wrath upon the Christ. He dies alone instead of me. He dies abandoned and forsaken for my unbelief. He descended into the dead of gloomy darkness for my rebellion. 
He absorbed the infinite and eternal wrath of fire and sufferings in my place. See, Jesus died for me. Instead of going into the wilderness and dying there, Jesus, by his grace, brings me into the promised land. Jesus died so that my eternal chains that I deserved would be shattered by the liberation of his cleansing blood. That Jesus absorbed the fiery sulfur from heaven so that I may be spared. Praise the Lord that Jesus saves. What love, what grace, what forgiveness and mercy. Oh, sinner, see the wrath that is to come and do not test the patience of God. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So come and take refuge in Christ. Repent of your sin, abandon your wicked ways, fall on your face and beg the Lord Jesus to save you. For by his death, he has saved us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect on this severe and hard warning from Jude, Lord, we confess that sin is what we have done. Lord, we have been unbelievers. We have rebelled. We have lived in immorality. But Lord, you have sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve. Father, we are so humbled, so overwhelmed by your grace. And Father, I pray that we would heed Jude's warning. Lord, I pray for those who don't know the Lord, who currently are under the fires of your judgment. Lord, that they would fall on their knees this morning and call out in desperation to Jesus. You are fearsome King who abounds in love and mercy to sinners. So Father, I pray that those who do not know you would repent and that they would trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we would not fool ourselves in a false profession. Lord, that we would not be unbelievers, that we would not be rebels against your will as those who have been saved by you, that we would not live lives of immorality. Lord, you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have transformed us by grace. Lord, help us to walk in light of the salvation you have given us. And may we not be fooled if we're living lives of sin unrepentantly. So Father, we pray, Lord, that we would hear your word, your good and precious word. And Lord, that Jesus, you would use it to shape and mold our hearts and lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.